Welcome to today's episode of Building Builders, a podcast made for contractors. Today's guest is Randy Blunt, an experienced contractor who is now the CFO of BuildWit. On this episode, we talk about everything related to buying versus renting heavy equipment. This includes when to buy versus when to rent, mistakes contractors make around equipment finances, and how this all factors into your bids and estimates. Remember to follow and subscribe on whatever streaming service you use. Hey, Randy, it's uh, it's great to meet you. Welcome to Building Builders Podcast. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this. Yeah, excited to be here. Yeah, um, so I've I've been following you online and, and I have a, a little bit of an idea of uh, some of the things you've been up to, but um, would love to, you know, just kind of hand it over to you and just hear a little bit about your background. And ultimately, I really want to get in, uh, get into talking about renting versus buying. And uh, yeah. I think you have some opinions on that. <laughs> yeah, they're opinions, so they might not be good ones, but they're opinions. <laughs> um, if you follow me online, I apologize. I'm not as active as many of the BuildWit people are. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm showing my age and some of my gray hair. But uh, yeah, so I was 17 when my dad decided he wanted to start a contracting business. Um, my dad, he hadn't finished high school. Uh, he dropped out of high school, but was just an incredibly hard worker. Super intelligent, but school wasn't for him. And so he went out and started working in the oil fields, came back to Arizona, worked for his father in a trucking business, and then ultimately went to work for somebody in um, excavation. And uh, when I was 17, I was getting ready to start my senior year of high school. And he came up to me and said, hey, I quit my job today. And I was 17 year old. I'm like, okay, like, what does that mean? Like, do I have lunch money next week? (laughs) And uh, he uh, he asked me to help him. And so I started helping, uh, as a senior in high school, working in the business, uh, doing takeoffs at the kitchen table, um, helping with business processes. And then, um, I went and I served a mission for my church. So I went and left for two years, was in Brazil and Florida, an incredible experience. I learned a ton about life, talking to people, all kinds of things. Uh, and when I came back, uh, I, I thought I was going to be a, uh, commodity trader. I loved finance. So I went into school for agribusiness. My dad got sick um, shortly after that. And I kind of just thought, hey, I'll I'll, uh, help run the business. He'll get better and he'll take the business back over and I'll go to Chicago and trade commodities. And um, when I was, uh, he he got sick, uh, ended up having cancer beat cancer. His health was never quite the same. And, uh, I kept thinking he was going to, you know, be in a position to take the business back over. And then he kind of passed away unexpectedly actually when I was 26. Oh, and man, so sorry about that. it's, it's okay. Like it was really hard and I'm really grateful for the experience because I have so much empathy now losing a parent when you're young is, is extremely difficult, but, um, but it's also a gift. Like it's, it's given me a great perspective and I think it's helped me become a better person. Um, and so, uh, the business went from about four to about 12 million when he was still alive while I was running it. And then, um, after that, uh, we started to like re kind of just re reinvent the company, like look at everything we were doing systems and processes and how we treated people and how we marketed the business, how and why we owned equipment and, um, we built a really successful business that was doing about 40 million in revenue. We got acquired. And then after acquisition, um, 
the company told us, Hey, if you want to go grow this thing, you know, we'll support you with the capital. And so in about two years, we went from 40 to a hundred million in revenue. Um, we, you know, more than doubled our people and still remained above industry average on profitability. So that was super fun. Um, and then, uh, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, um, Sometimes it's hard to run your, 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 your business, uh, for somebody else. And so there just came a point where I felt like I was probably, I was probably going to be happier if I went and did something else. Um, love the people there still am in touch with them, still help them on a pretty regular basis. Actually had a call from one of them this morning, but decided it was time for me to go and focus on uh, BuildWit, which I had been an early investor in. And so oh. we work, we, we work over at BuildWit, and um, we work to make the dirt world a better place. That's our mission, and most of our focus is around people. So you know, how do we help companies attract more talent? How do we help them create and define their culture? How do we train their people? Um, we call it the people life cycle. So how do we how do we attract people into the industry? How do we train and onboard them? And then how do we retain and engage them? That's really our focus, and it's been incredibly fun. I've been able to not only do that, but also consult and help some of our clients on business practices, equipment, that kind of stuff. So um, there's the the five-minute spiel about who, who I am and my background. Super impressive uh, and so much to talk about. How long have you, you been at uh, BuiltWit now? Uh, so full-time uh, in November, let's see, was it October? It was when I... Um, stepped down from my role at um, Blunt slash WW Clyde. And I really didn't know what I was going to do, but um, I started just digging in and helping out. And it was decided by the board that I would step into the CFO role there. That's been since, um, I think that was made official at our board meeting in December. So, um, but I've, but I've been an investor for over two and a half years. Wow. Very cool. Um, you've obviously seen, you know, so much, I mean, the, we're, uh, talking about a business when you first joined a 4 million, uh, to 40 million, you know, bringing on an investor and bringing it to a hundred million a couple of years later, um, you know, unbelievable changes, completely different businesses. Right. I think, uh, yeah. um, you know, I, I've, I've run some businesses in those ranges, not all of them, but, uh, they, uh, they are completely different businesses. They have to be run differently. Um, and frankly, I'd love to learn some more from you and, you know, your thoughts. And as I mentioned before, maybe we can dive right in. I, I'd love to learn more about your opinions on, uh, um, owning versus, uh, you know, uh, renting equipment, um, and, and even how that plays out in different stages, uh, of a business. Yeah. Well, I think maybe just to start off, I think one of the things that's really interesting about that growth is a lot of us who end up in a role where we're, whether it's you're the entrepreneur who starts the business or you're even one of the people who's a part of growing and managing a business, the thing that kind of everybody experiences is there comes a time where the business is bigger than you mm-hmm. and that transition can be tough. Like you have to sure. realize I can't do this all and it can't all be done exactly my way. 
And so you have to, you have to set up guardrails to allow people to deliver on your mission, on your product, but the flexibility to make the mistakes that got you to where you're at, right? Like, you know, you talk about, it's incredible to get from four to a hundred million. What you don't realize is it's, I just made like a hundred thousand mistakes, but I kept (laughs) at it, but but I kept at it. Right. Very few entrepreneurs or, or managers or leaders get to where they're at without stumbling. It's, it's surely the ability to stumble and get up Mm -hmm. and ideate like, Oh, Hey, when I talked to that person, I offended them. What, how come I offended them? Okay. I need to do that differently. You know? Right. Um, so equipment's no different, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of the lessons I've learned on equipment are, um, just from making mistakes. So this is the, I talked about this a little bit at con expo, but this is kind of my, my first thought on equipment is this, I don't care what your business is. If you're a contractor, people mm-hmm. don't pay you for equipment, right? People pay you for a service. Totally. And we get, we get, we, we have to be super careful. We have a bias. Generally, if you're in construction, like the kind of construction that uses equipment, you like equipment. Yep. It's cool. Yeah. We all played with Tonka trucks. Yeah. Like, for sure. Hey, 330 excavator, three, 395 excavator. Sometimes the bigger, the cooler, but the price tag is there and it might not be the right financial decision. A landscape company probably doesn't need a lot of 10 ton and greater excavators. They're cool. Probably doesn't need a lot of them, if any. Um, So remember your customers aren't saying, Hey, I'm going to pay you for this, this, I'm paying you for this equipment. They're paying you to do something and to do it well. Mm -hmm. So now equipment is a, a, you know, a, a large input on, um, most construction businesses. So uh, CFMA, which is, is uh, the Construction Finance Management Association, they, um, they have these statistics that they publish about um, the construction industry. I'm going to use the heavy civil right now just because the heavy civil is one of the more predominant um, equipment users. Obviously, landscaping and you know, concrete, plenty of those fall in it. But if you look at them and you say, well, how much of their business is made up of the costs associated with equipment? They, they, um, they have some statistics around that and it varies depend, depending on a you know, company size. So you can see companies who their equipment expenses are as low as 5% of their direct cost mm-hmm. up to 25 to 30% of their direct cost. So in a lot of businesses, equipment is a significant input cost. For sure. Um, And uh, because of that, I think you have to really be thinking, well, how do I manage this well? And so that gets us to this point of rent versus own. Mm -hmm. Um, Remind me, you had a landscape company? I did. And I owned a lot of equipment. I also rented a lot, but, um, I, I have, uh, I have some opinions and I've, I've made uh, a lot of mistakes in the past. So I'm very curious to hear your standpoint here. What, what's your, what was your favorite piece of equipment? Just, just, I'm just curious. 
Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> it probably depended on the time of year. We did a lot of snow removal and we did okay. uh, um, the summer work. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, articulating uh, payloaders, like a lot of three-yard uh, payloaders. But I I like mini-Xs, um, oh, cool. like a five-ton mini-X with a thumb. And, you know, now they've got, uh, you know, knuckles on them. That's even better. But Yeah, the tilt rotators. You can do so much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's super cool. Um so this may or may not be the the right for every business, but if you think about most businesses, they have a cyclical nature, right? Especially mm-hmm. around construction, uh, whether that's landscape or anything like there's a seasonality to the work. And so there's kind of that bell curve in almost every market, uh, even in Arizona where I'm at, where uh, weather doesn't really affect um, the ability to work in December, it generally is a little bit slower in December or November just because of the holidays kind of right. just slows down a little bit. And so what happens is when you think about that bell curve and you look at it, so many of us go to that peak of the bell curve and we say, I'm going to own all the equipment because hmm. I need, I need it for this peak. Right. Well, that's, right. that's the peak of the bell curve. And that doesn't represent most of um, the year. So I think having a owned versus rent strategy that takes that into consideration is really important. Um, Ownership cost is cheaper than rental cost if it's Mm -hmm. well maintained and well utilized. And utilization is really key in that. So finding where you can have the needed utilization is really important in this discussion. But I would say for us, our benchmark was we wanted to own about 60 to 70% of the equipment we needed. Mm -hmm. Um, And we knew that renting costed us a little more, but we had this formula where we would say, how much does it cost to own this? Like truly own it for the month. So we would take the, the acquisition cost, we would add on all of our um, burdens for operating the equipment, maintaining the equipment, and then we would say, okay, let's divide that out by how many hours we think we'll use it in the year, divide that by 12. Okay, we come up with this number. Mm-hmm. We would take that number and we would divide it into the rental rate and we'd yep. get a percentage. And that percentage would say how utilized with a piece of equipment had to be to be break even versus renting. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. I have a lot of questions. I'm going to let you keep going. (laughs) Okay. So once we did that, we would say, okay, what does this number look like? If we saw that number was below 70, 75, um, we'd be like, oh, it might make sense to own this because we can be between 70 and 75% utilized and it's still cheaper than owning or than renting it. If the number was over 75%, we'd be kind of cautionary. Hey, does this make sense? And what's interesting is like people would say, what does that work for everything? We did drilling as well. So foundations, Mm -hmm. super specialized pieces of equipment, a very expensive, generally speaking, the rental market reflects that. So even on a, Even on an asset like that where we said, hey, we're only going to be able to utilize this 600 hours a month versus 1,200 hours a month. 
there's no way it's going to make sense. Well, you do all that math and what you say, see is, oh, but it costs a lot more to rent. So it still kind of worked where it would give you that utilization percentage. I'm going to stop and take a breath. Okay. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> so on that utilization rate, um, mm-hmm. let, let me tell you a little story about, you know, where we really messed up in the past and, and curious to see how you uh, calculate this. There, we used to have all these th- three yard wheel loaders and we started trying to use them, right? Like they were, they were for snow removal. We didn't need them in the summertime. Then we were trying to shift our business to find jobs that needed them. But, you know, even more so they became these, massive wheelbarrows right like our summer crews wanted to use this rather than you know using a wheelbarrow on a job site so all of a sudden we're driving these three herd wheel loaders 15 kilometers across the city so that we could avoid having to lift a plate tamper into the back of the truck i mean that's kind of extreme but like just trying to you know share that uh you know we have messed up here um is it, do you have like any kind of metric uh, to say like the the quality hours uh, that contribute towards the utilization rate uh, or the intended uh, utilized hours? Uh, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so there's a few th- a few thoughts, and I'm not sure I have them organized. So you're just going to get them <laughs> how they come. One Sounds is good. I think I think you know one of the things that we really luck out on is. There's a lot more transparency into equipment use because of so many of the manufacturers on late model equipment now just have built in GPS with metrics where you can see what are my use hours versus my idle hours. You know, like, so if you see a a loader being used for a lot of wheelbarrow work, it's going to show in those data. There's going to be lots of idle time on that machine. Um, so I think looking at the metric of how much time is it idling versus working and then how many hours total really starts to tell that picture. And so like when I talk about 70% utilization, that's in my mind, uh, you know, probably not idling, uh, probably much more than like 15 to 18%, uh, of, of that time. So I think that's one thing that you could look at. I think the other thing is, is like, once again, just recognizing we have a bias, like we generally have a pretty good gut check uh, and that you, you mentioned this and I've been there. So um, like you're cutting a, a channel and you're there, you're cutting the channel with the excavator and like you're trying to fine grade this channel with the excavator to the level that you really should be using a rake. At some, at, some, at some point you, you see you have two laborers there who have rakes mm-hmm. and you're like, like, you know, like I should just move on, but like, but I just, I, I like equipment. And I just, I just want to see how good I can get it. Right. Right. Like that's a bit of an art because there's not a metric there, but I think anybody who's been in the business a fair amount, they, they start to see it. Like, man, we we're we're really pushing to use equipment when a good old fashioned shovel or rake, or in this case, a wheelbarrow probably helps, right? Right. Or probably does it better even. Um, so 
Uh, I'm a huge fan of equipment. I'm a huge fan of uh, where that goes. There will be some level of autonomy in the future, but I also believe there's times where good old fashioned manual labor is still the best option. And uh, don't, don't be scared to do that. What you're suggesting, um, and I completely agree with it, takes a ton of discipline. Right. So to really effectively use that machine, um, you know, I just thinking through the day, you know, you're, you're on that channel, it's two in the afternoon. Right. And I feel like this is where sort of the breakdown comes is it's 2 PM. I've hit a point where I can keep using this machine for the rest of the day and save, you know, some of the backbreaking labor, maybe not do the, the job you know, as well as the, you know, the guys on the ground. Um, but I can kind of save them a little bit of work. I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And do I have a truck available? Is the next project, you know, set up, ready to float this truck for me to, you know, start the next project? Uh, there's, there's some logistical problems uh, that sort of present themselves. Um, and, and that discipline to be able to, set yourself up so that you can handle those logistic, uh, sort of nightmares, <laughs> um, you know, uh, complicates this utilization, uh, factor. Yeah. I, I guess first off, I would just say this is not easy. Um, yeah. if it was the construction mark, the construction industry, would be a much higher margin industry, right? Managing, right. managing <clears throat> people spread out all over a region, that uh have a lot of autonomy don't always know aren't always empowered to know everything that they need to do or where they're going it makes it difficult i'm a big fan of jocko uh jocko he writes uh, several books but one of the ones that he's most famous for is called extreme ownership um and uh, it's really about leadership Uh, when i heard the title i thought it was about owning a business or something but it's about uh, owning or controlling what you can control and, and how to be a good leader. And uh, we had the fortunate opportunity to go and do what they call a field training exercise where we go and um, they do simulated battles and they teach leadership principles. And then they put you in this high stress environment um, to see how you do at living those leadership principles. And um I, I was the first leader to go do that uh, in this particular event, and I just failed miserably. And I, and I consider myself a fairly good leader, um, but I realized quickly um, I didn't communicate well. I didn't delegate well. I was micromanaging in some aspects. And so he uses a term called, um, gosh, now it just escaped my mind, um, Dang. It's like this, he, it's decentralized command, but in, in relation to that, he talks about how um, sometimes you have to step away uh, to have that perspective you need to make the right For decisions. Sure. And whether you're the person who's operating the excavator or you're the business owner, you do really need to make sure that you're taking an opportunity to create that perspective. So, hey, I have these three well loaders and I look at it a number of hours and it's barely where they need to be to not just rent them when I need them. 
and I know I'm probably, I'm probably forcing utilization a, a lot. What if every time I needed a will loader, I had to pay rent on it? How would that change the behavior in the organization? Right. Yep. When you own it, sure. it's like, oh, just bring the willow loader out here. It's at the yard. Yep. Right. It's a bad and way to think. It's a bad way to think. Yeah. But when when you're renting it, there's this kind of like, oh, I'm paying somebody else money. So get it in, get what I need, get done, get it out. Right. Yeah. And that alone almost just changes the perspective of how you do your work. Because now it's like, well, how do we be? How are we the most productive we can be today? Because we're bringing in this asset. So. I'm just going to use this wheel loader to go put 20 piles spread out along this site and I'm having them kind of just back drag a little bit, some of the rock. And then after that, I'm getting out of here because it's yeah. on rent. I don't want it here tomorrow. I'll finish everything else by hand. I can do that way cheaper. So just taking a moment to kind of separate from the emotional and, and from, you know, those blinders to say like, is this really what makes the most financial sense? I think oftentimes starts to get you where you need to be. Randy, early in my career, we didn't own as much equipment. And um, I often think about this now where <clears throat> at the end of the career, you know, you're right. There's just a wheel loader in the yard. You can bring it out at any point. But at the beginning, we would budget for rental um, because we hadn't figured out how to purchase yet. And, uh, you know, what would happen was we would only have a rental, budgets were tight and we only had the rental for one or two days and it would be coming to the end of day two and it's like, okay, well, we need to be super, super disciplined on what gets done on this job site today because the, the machine's not here tomorrow. After this, this is all manual labor and nobody wants to move that armor stone tomorrow. So let's, okay, let's figure out how to move, you know, get that into place or at least close. Um, what are all the, the things that, you know, the machine needs to do. And then tomorrow we're going to, you know, make everything look nice and the rest is uh, done by hand. So I, this speaks, this really speaks volumes to me because uh, I've, I've been there and I've, I've, I've felt it before. I, I have a, um, so I tend to think around the same lines on you and the 60, 70% of fleet owned. Uh, that's kind of where I landed towards the end. Um, why not a hundred percent? Well, when does it make sense to rent in your opinion? I, I think the reason that you can't do a hundred percent is because uh, equipment assets don't have a one year payback. Like mm -hmm. you, you go out and buy a piece of equipment and you finance it. Assuming you're buying new, you're not paying for that asset for, a considerable amount of time, you know, three to seven year finance terms. So if you say, I'm going to go buy a hundred percent of the equipment and you think you've talked yourself into, I have a good handle on what my backlog looks like for more than 18 months. You're lying. Right. So yeah. there's just, there's just a level of um, security that comes from, if I miss, yeah, I got some room. Right. Yep. So, so I think owning a hundred is just so hard unless you are, and even the big companies don't do this, but if you had, you know, Hey, I, I just won this one job. It's going to basically be my entire company for five years. Well, that's yep. a different story. Like let's go figure out how to buy the pieces of equipment for that one job. That's going to last five years. Um, I, I think I also would say, um, 
when it comes to equipment and, and, you know, when would it make sense to own more? Uh, I think it does depend a little bit about your fleet. So my experience is, uh, utilization can be much lower on some of the smaller equipment. Mm -hmm. So skid steers, for example, uh, utilization can be a lot lower and it matches the rental houses. So you can maybe make an argument if you were only running smaller equipment, you could have a greater percentage that was owned by the company. My rebuttal would be if rental houses are charging you more for those pieces of equipment and people are willing to pay it, mm -hmm. it's because generally speaking, they're lower utilized, right? Yeah. So you know, you could argue that because they're lower utilized, you can get away with your own being lower, lower utilized, but just make sure you don't have a bias in your calculations. When you say, I'm going to use this skid steer for 800 hours in a year, because that's probably not realistic. They, they just not what happens. Um, I, I often look to rental houses to inform decisions. What I mean by that is if rental houses whether it's a, you know, United or Sun State or whatever, you know, these large multi-state, multinational firms, yep. their sole business is renting equipment so, so that they have to make money on that. Yep. Um, and they have a lot of experience in a lot of markets. They, they kind of help you pick up on some trends, I feel like. So, um, for example, we used to buy equipment old and we would, uh, we would say, Hey, we're just, I can buy this piece of equipment. It's way cheaper and I'll go use it for, you know, a few years and I'll rebuild it. It'll, it'll be great. Right. And it worked when we were small, but then all of a sudden we needed more and more mechanics, which meant we had to manage more and more mechanics and the Mechanics had to be in more remote locations and parts had to be run to jobs. And all of a sudden we realized we're spending more to own old equipment than new and new equipment yeah. is more enjoyable to operate. It's got better utilization. And then we looked at the rental houses and said, how is it that the rental houses don't have old fleets if they want to make money? Huh? Right. There might be something to this. There might be something to it. And, and actually we did a study on this. Uh, I proposed this to the executive team after acquisition. And we looked at our own cost uh, at this company and we saw for us, you know, five to six years on many pieces of equipment was where our lowest cost of ownership was. After five to six years, that ownership cost started to creep up. Now that varied completely depending on if you're talking about an asphalt plant or um, sure. a mini skid steer, but that was kind of a trend we saw. And it and it's funny. And then I took that and I said, let's go back and let's look at when are Sun States and Uniteds and cat dealers selling equipment? And you're like, huh, their rental fleet's kind of six to seven years on a lot of equipment, some, you know, shorter, the smaller equipment. Yeah. Some's three to four. Yeah. A little, yeah. 
Yep. But I'm like, oh, it started, that starts to align and make sense. So for us, um, we let those whose strict business was managing equipment help influence our thought process. This podcast is sponsored by Dozer, an online marketplace for heavy equipment rentals across North America. Partnering with thousands of rental houses, Dozer provides contractors with access to local suppliers, transparent pricing, mobile ordering, and an industry-leading payment option of 0% interest for 60 days. Go to dozer.com to find your next heavy equipment rental. That's D-O-Z-R dot com. How did the... Uh, <clears throat> some of the equipments become pretty specialized, right? Like skid steers, compact track loaders... You know, when you look through, uh, you know, say you go on Cat's website and look at skid steers, like how many are there? There's like 30 of them. <laughs> Same thing when you look at mini excavators. Um, they all kind of have their, you know, their own purpose. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a there's a really good reason to have a four ton versus a four and a half ton on some jobs. Um, to, it, does that impact your thinking at all? And when you're purchasing versus, uh, versus renting, um, like for me, it might've been different for me because I couldn't a four, a three ton could fit through a gate and get into the backyard. A five ton couldn't fit through the gate. We'd have to tear the fence down, but we could carry the armor stone into the backyard. Um, so we found that you kind of needed like a whole toolbox of mini excavators. And then, you know, towards the end, we started renting a little bit more because I, it was the juggling act of trying to keep all different sizes of excavators utilized was difficult. Um, did you find anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, what you experienced exists at the bigger level, right? Like bigger equipment, it's the same thing. It's like, Hey, I really could use a zero tail swing machine. Yeah. Um, cause I, I'm in the road, but then when I have that zero tail swing machine and I'm out loading trucks off a bench, you're like, eh, it feels light in the tail and, uh, not as stable. So sometimes it's hard to get the exact right machine. I think that's probably even another influence into why you don't own a hundred percent of your fleet. Because if you try and get every machine for every circumstance, you're going to end up with more than you need, right? Like, Hey, uh, this machine is going to be utilized 80 hours this year or 200 hours this year. I mean, that's just over one month's rent. There's no way you can own it cheaper than renting it. So I think specialized equipment, um, if it is not very specialized and very hard to rent, you definitely look at Hey, I'm going to rent this. We also had a policy where we didn't really own small tools anymore. Um, like jumping jacks or plate temps, you know, like, and the, the thought process for us was I don't have somebody who sits at the yard who brings in every small tool and no small engines and makes sure all the fuel stabilized, cleans them, like maintains them. And so they would break down a lot. Yeah. There was nothing worse than showing up and being like, here's the plate tamp. And and then it didn't work. And then I had to go rent one while we fixed it. And I'm like, I am so done with that. I'm just going to rent them because I know they'll work because they have most of these rental places have somebody who like, that's, 
that's what their dedication is like small engine equipment. Um, so, so a lot of that, we actually, uh, shifted towards renting. You know, um, that's a really interesting observation. If <clears throat> thinking about the maintenance on small versus large equipment, in some ways, I'm oversimplifying here. I know I am, but an oil change is an oil change, right? So, you know, <clears throat> maybe that's why you start to see more small compact equipment uh, uh, in rental fleets versus, you know, 30 ton excavators. You're going to see more mini excavators out there because the, the maintenance is just so high, the cost of maintenance. Uh, I'm really curious, how did you, um, like when you were estimating these jobs, were you estimating for rental or were you looking at your equipment as you kind of described your own equipment being its own rental fleet? How did you look at this? How did, and then how did you estimate for uh, maintenance uh, on these projects, on yeah. this equipment, on these projects? Yeah. I mean, everyone does this a little bit different. And I, through consulting, I've been able to see how people do this all over the country. Um, I have an opinion and my opinion is estimate everything as if it's going to rent be rented yeah. um, because you, you don't know, like when you're, when you're estimating projects, generally they're going to start in some period of time in the future. That's somewhat uncertain and you don't can't really control for sure. What other work you'll have be going on, where your fleet will be being used. And um, we job costed pretty extensively. So, my thought was like, I don't ever want somebody to be a project manager or superintendent or foreman on a project and going into the project, know that their equipment's all going to cost more than what was in the estimate because we said we were going to use our own equipment and now they have to rent. Like it's a bad right. place to be in my opinion. And we still grew our revenue from 40 to hundred million doing that. So, um, you know, in different markets, uh, market conditions, maybe it wouldn't be that easy to continue to want to work, but we had always taken an approach since 2006 of we're going to, we're going to bid jobs with rental rates. And, uh, we, you know, been able to grow over that period of time. So I think I would always recommend create rental rates, uh, equipment rates that are based off rental rates, compare them to your own. So you have an idea like how much, how much difference is there? Um, and then bid with those rates. If you win the work and you're able to utilize your own equipment, then you'll be more profitable. And nobody nobody hates that, right? Uh, what was the second part of that question? Sorry. <laughs> you know what? I think you've kind of answered it. I, I, I have another question burning that I've just got okay. to ask you. Um, <clears throat> Do you have a, a an opinion formed on building equity in the equipment? Is this when you buy equipment, are you buying it uh, to build equity to be able to eventually have it as part of your exit plan? Uh, is that is that factored in? Um, yeah, that's a good point. There are many companies who are acquired based off of asset value. So there's yep. companies that are acquired off of that. I don't think I would build a business based off of that approach. And my reason being is one, it's equipment uh, resale values is cyclical. And so you, mm -hmm. you can't really control that variation, whether you're going to get, you know, 
there's probably a pretty wide spectrum on what you actually get and resell depending on the year you did it because of the economy and supply and demand of equipment. Two, I never really want to build value in a company based off of a depreciating asset. Yeah. Right? So the assets, assets going down. I think if you're trying to build enterprise value, you focus on how do I create the greatest return on investment? Because mm-hmm. most people who are doing acquisitions are going to do an ROI or an internal rate of return when it comes to the acquisition. They're going to say, if I invest this much dollars, how many dollars am I going to get back? And if they're not, and they're just buying your assets, then you're probably not getting a lot of money for your business. Right? Like, Definitely. <clears throat> we, um, we definitely made this mistake, you know, probably up until year four, you know, it was a giant sandbox. We wanted to own our own equipment and thought, Hey, we're going to pay these things off in four years and then we'll have the assets and then we'll be able to sell them. Um, it becomes a lot more complicated as you start to have, you know, varying terms on, you know, leases and finances, owning some financing others when it comes to exit. Um, especially if you exit fairly quickly and haven't planned for, you know, selling, um, you might be upside down on some of these. Uh, that's unfortunately we were on some of our pieces of equipment. We were upside down on some of these loaders. We had just bought them, you know, in the past six months. Um, so that was a, a bit of a, a lesson there. The other thing that kind of, you know, was an eye opener was if somebody's going to buy you, they're probably going to be bigger um, and they'll have more purchasing power than you did. So it's a little bit foolish in a way, or at least I felt like I had been foolish in purchasing, thinking that I was, you know, the best negotiator and I could get the best price on the equipment. But the the person that's going to acquire you can go ahead and acquire the equipment cheaper. So they're probably looking at your, your, uh, your equipment as, you know, somewhat of a liability, uh, on your, on your balance sheet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, often what they're going to do is they're going to want the, they're going to want to give you a price for the equipment and they're going to want the equipment to come unencumbered by debt. And they're going to go out and say, what's the fair market value of this equipment? There's, you know, it's not uncommon if you're carrying debt for that debt to be close to or exceed it. And you, you guys are based out of Canada. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know if this, this probably doesn't apply in Canada, but in the U.S., uh, over the last few years, there's been what they call Section 179. Uh, it's an IRS tax code that allows you to do bonus depreciation on assets. So in you know the first year of owning an asset, you could potentially depreciate its entire amount. So wow. there's, one, there's one more complication, which is I just reduced or eliminated my tax liability this year. And then in two years, I go to sell that asset and I'm close to break even on the asset. But now I have to take a gain on the sell of that asset because from a tax standpoint, it's at zero and I sold it for X. So you may actually owe taxes now, even though there's no cash being generated from it. Yikes. uh, Yeah, yeah, that's another consideration. My goodness. Um, it just yeah, I guess I'm being a little uh, conscious of time here. Um, I'm going to switch gears. I'm, I'm I'd love to just hear a little bit more um, about your move to to Biltwit. We love the vision. Um, it seems like a really big step. Uh, would love to just kind of hear a little more about how uh, how you moved over. Yeah, so um, I met Aaron. Uh, I don't know, 
probably five years ago now. I met him at a coffee shop. I, I saw him and I'm like, hey, you're that guy who's on Instagram taking pictures. Love what you're doing. And then like a year later, we were coming up on our 20th anniversary of, of being incorporated as a business. And so um, I reached out to him and said like, hey, we, we want to look at rebranding. Like I created this logo in, in high school and it's kind of starting to look dated and we want to capture, you know, we want to build on the legacy that my father started and that honor that and move into the future. And so um, they were super excited. We were paying our equipment gray at the time and they, they loved it. So they came in, they helped market us. And then after working for them for a year, um, they said they need investment. And I believed in what they were doing. Um, you know, part of like that legacy side of what my dad did, he always talked about, he wanted to build something he was proud to put his name on and that he wanted to build a company that took care of families. And it just felt like it aligned really well with the mission of build a better dirt world. Um, mm -hmm. and sometimes we have to explain when we talk about dirt world, it's a very broad definition, uh, meaning mining infrastructure, construction, landscaping, transmission, kind of anywhere that your boots are getting dirty. They're in the dirt, right? Um, man, I just, it, it, that mission really resonates with me. And this is why I realized, although I was very successful, I was a little bit ashamed of what I did. And we're, we're all proud of being in construction, but at the same time, we're all a little bit embarrassed. And let me show you how that would show up. It would be like this. Um, I just do construction. I just moved yeah. here. Right. Like, why do I, why am I saying just like, what's wrong with running a successful business that's doing 40 million in revenue that I feel like I need to preface it with? I just moved dirt. Like what in the world? And I realized it's because there's a lot of people who think that construction is a second plan. It's a plan B. It's a dropout. I couldn't do college. Wasn't smart enough to do college. And I felt like that's just not the case. And uh, we met this uh, individual who he was working at a coal mine in um, North, North Dakota or South Dakota, maybe. And he was a mechanic. He, uh, the bucket on this, he was fixing a bucket on drag line, a 103 cubic yard bucket. I mean, massive. Drive, so drive one of your, drive probably two of those wheel loaders and sit it inside the bucket. <clears throat> right. It's moving dirt so coal can get to the plant. Bucket breaks. It's minus like 22 degrees at night. And this mechanic decides he's going to help make sure that that bucket gets switched out that night and is ready to run the next morning so that they can get the material uncovered. People can haul coal to the plant. No coal is very uh, polarizing right now, but let's just remember people who are in minus 22 degree weather needed heat. And this plant was dope. Yep. Right. right. This, this guy works all night to repair it, but it's so cold that he decides I don't want to go back in because I don't want to warm up and then have to come back out into the cold. By the time the night's over, his hard hats frozen to his head. Right. Wow. Which there's a safety side of it. And I know there'll be some listeners who, you know, key in on that. I agree. But just think about it. This guy 
who's working in an industry that's probably polarized in a pretty dark way, did that to make sure people had power. Like right. that is that is like community service. That is uh, like they should construction workers. This industry should be equivalent to public safety. Like, yes, we're not putting our life on the line in the same way, but there's risk associated with this. Um, why can't we, when someone walks in, who's wearing a safety vest say, Hey, thank you for helping take care of our community. And yeah. when I, when I realized that I could have a part of helping change that narrative, I thought this is a way I can give back to an industry that's helped me, uh, you know, do well and be in a position where I can give back. And I'm like, I want to give back. I want my son, if he decides that he wants to be in construction, I want him to be able to be proud of that and say, I'm a construction worker and I love to build with my hands. Right. So I think that's really what probably led me to, to decide this is what I wanted to do. And then as, as I, you know, joined with them as an investor and I watched the, the business, I started to see, Hey, I have a skill set That's, that's good here. I, I like numbers. Um, I, I understand the industry I can contribute. And so I was able to say, Hey, I'm going to have some time. I'm, I'm going to step away from the business that I'd grown. Do I fit here? If so, where and how, and you know, like I, I said, over the, about a two month period, we came to the, um, decision that I could probably help as a CFO and it's been super fun. Randy, I didn't expect such a great answer. That was, uh, that was awesome. Thank you for, um, yeah, you guys are doing some very cool stuff over there. I couldn't be any more aligned with what you're doing and, uh, I'd uh, love to hear you speak about it. I have two more questions for you. Uh, just kind of running out of time, but, uh, my, my team told me that, uh, you're a, a deep sea fisherman. Um, is, is that true? And where, where's the best spot? Not, I'm not sure that I'm a deep sea fisherman, but I do like to fish. Okay. And, uh, this, I had the, the company who I worked for WW Clyde, the president there, Dustin Olson, he loves to fly fish. And so, um, okay. he, he, uh, kind of was like, Hey, you need to come try this. You like to fish and you come do some fly fishing with us. And we did it, loved it, had so much fun. And then he came up that we had a client trip that was scheduled and he said, Hey, there's a fly fishing trip. Do you have any clients that want to go? And I'm like, Oh, I can find some people. Turns out it was in Belize. No so way. we did fly fishing in Belize. Um, and it was incredible. Uh, so wow. you're, fly, you're, fly, you're fishing in these just beautiful crystal clear water. Um, probably never gets more than 20 feet deep. And in many cases it's about, you know, three feet deep. And right. so you're out there with a fly rod walking these, like they're like sand flats almost, right? Like just these wow. big, huge flat areas and catching bonefish, tarpon, uh, permit. Uh, you're, you're there kind of in a tropical environment. There's mangroves. Uh, it was incredible. Super grateful that they would let me as a, as a newer executive in the company, go do something like that with customers. It was so fun. That's, I'm super jealous. That sounds amazing. Was awesome. Um, cool. So my last question, uh, you know, we always ask uh, people if they have a favorite piece of equipment. Uh, curious what yours is. Oh, that's a good one. Favorite piece of equipment. I, this is the really hard for me. I really like equipment. 
And because um, we did really specialty stuff like drilling, tiebacks, vertical stuff, like mm-hmm. that stuff is just so fascinating because not as many people go like around it and the torque and stuff is all really cool. But I'm going to use favorite in the context of what do I really like to run? Mm-hmm. And it's a toss up for me between an excavator and a dozer. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like I really liked running both of those machines. Um, I think I might pick a dozer because it's just fascinating, like everything you can do with a dozer. But I can make the same argument about an excavator. I'm going to say it's a tie. It's a tie between an excavator and dozer. Love it. Yeah, um, both very uh, very cool pieces. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Randy, for. Uh, speaking with us today. This has been awesome. I've loved kind of getting to know you and learning, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, your thoughts on renting and buying and just about your, your experience in this space. So yeah, just thanks so much. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Randy, is there anywhere that, uh, our team should be, or sorry, our, our listeners should be finding you, um, uh, you know, uh, on social media or elsewhere? Yeah, so I think uh, there's probably two things. Go check out buildwit.com. Uh, go see what we're doing at Buildwit. As well as we started a website called dirtworld.com, and it's really uh, focused around this movement of understanding the dirt world and the people that are in it, the stories, what careers look like there. And um, we actually are putting together a summit this October where uh, we're bringing Jocko, like the, Esch- uh, the Echelon Front team, so Jocko and then also other world-class speakers to come and say, hey, what can we do different in the industry to control how we make this a better place? Like, hey, we want people to see it as a better place, but what can we do? Um, and so that, that'll that be in Houston in October, the end of October. It's called the Dirt World Summit. So that'd be awesome if they nice. could check those out. Yeah, that's great. I hope everyone does. Um, thanks again, Randy. It's been great. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Randy about buying versus renting equipment. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media and watch all of our episodes on YouTube. And make sure to subscribe if you're on YouTube. All links to the guests are provided in the description of this episode. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back for our next episode.